BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys episode 165, The Ladies Mile. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code BOWERY. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tom, let's go shopping today. Let's do go shopping. In fact, let's go shopping today along a stretch that, well, we normally go shopping along. (laughs) That is Ladies Mile, which is neither just for ladies, nor is it actually a mile. It's hardly even half of a mile. (laughs) But it is the area of Manhattan known as the main shopping district during New York's Gilded Age. That's right. In fact, it was called by various sources the heart of the Gilded Age, and it was said to have had a, quote, Champagne Sparkle. Today, it's primarily known as a collection of extraordinary buildings. They used to call them commercial palaces, and I'm sure that we'll describe them as such a few times in this episode. These are places, if you live in New York or you visited New York and you've gone shopping on 6th Avenue between 14th and 23rd or down 5th Avenue or along a stretch of Broadway there, these are buildings that you have probably looked up at at some point and thought, wow, that's really a large Bed Bath & Beyond. (laughs) We're going to walk you through what you would be shopping for, how you would be shopping, how these stores arranged merchandise, because of course, this is also the birth of the department store itself. And then we'll actually take you to this place with a quick walk that you could do in your mind or with your feet. And if you get through this shopping experience, at the end of the podcast, we have a couple announcements to make. So you'll want to stay until checkout. So join us as we browse through the history of Ladies Mile. Tom, of course, we have lots of shopping districts in New York today, everywhere from Fifth Avenue to Times Square to Soho. That's right. But the area we're talking about today is still a shopping district or has recently become one. Please situate us as to where this area is, the area that we'll be talking about today. Well, so we've called this show the Ladies Mile. And in fact, there is a Ladies Mile historic district that was classified by the New York City Landmark Preservation Commission in 1989. So there is an actual border to the Ladies Mile, although it's also, you know, we include things that are outside of that physical border. I think when it was first called Ladies Mile, it really did extend further south than what the historic district is today. And I think a lot of that has to do with the architecture that has survived the ages here. Exactly, exactly. Because this cluster of buildings today is 28 blocks. It encompasses about 440 buildings. But again, roughly speaking, let's say it's between 14th Street and 23rd Street and includes 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, and then that stretch of Broadway going from Union Square North up to Madison Square at 23rd Street. For those who know New York by its landmarks, essentially it's the area that is south and west of the Flatiron Building. You know, Greg and I have a map of the Ladies Mile Historic District taped up onto our computer screen right now uh, that we're able to look at. 
if you have access to a map, it would probably come in handy a little bit later when we do our little walking tour. Although you could also follow along just by looking it up on Google or something. You could literally walk with Street View up these streets because it's not very complicated. Many of the buildings we're talking about are still around, which is right. kind of unusual in the stories that we tell on this show, where we're usually talking about things that are long past. And a lot of these buildings, you know, give a sense of mood as you're walking around. Maybe something you haven't really thought about before, but as you pass by a lot of these stores, because many of them are still stores today and office buildings, you get a sense um, from the architectural uniformity of the buildings Mm -hmm. that there is a, a beauty in the air as you're walking around. Many of these buildings were built around the same time in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, with many Beaux-Arts, Italianate facades, and many of them took advantage of cast iron architecture, which we're going to get into later, but that allowed these facades to have a lot of rich ornamentation. So in short, this is a district of very lovely five or six story, 125 year old buildings, many of which were developed as shopping emporiums and many of which still have giant stores in them today. Let me give you a tiny history of where you might have been shopping in New York, in post-Revolutionary War New York. Shopping was a very different experience than it is today. People went to places that catered to individual items. You know, you had furniture makers and haberdashers. You did have mercantiles. You did have places where you could get a collection of goods, but you weren't picking them out yourself. You were going up to a counter and you were telling a person what you needed and then you were handed those items. Now, I want to focus specifically on clothing because clothing plays a huge role in our story, the the purchasing of clothing. There wasn't really what we were used to, which is a ready-to-wear industry where you go into a shop and then there are set sizes and you buy something that's already been made. But that wouldn't even come along until like the 1880s. No, for the most part, what you did, it's very complicated, is you would go buy your own fabric. You would Mm -hmm. buy your own buttons and then you would take them to to a, a cutter who would then cut the cloth and then you would take it to another person who would sew it. So, you know, that got very, That's very complicated. if you had the money to pay somebody else. Otherwise, you could, I guess, make your own clothing. R- yes, you could. And there are also places ca- uh, in the early days called slop sellers where you could buy <laughs> hand-me-down clothes. Um, oh, so the early vintage. sort of... <laughs> yes, today we call them vintage. Back then they called it slop. <laughs> now, generally speaking, the very first clothe- clothiers and the very first shops were got their start around on Catherine Street, which was east on Broadway, but we're talking all the way downtown. So mm-hmm. almost in the area of South Street Seaport, which we did a podcast on just a couple months ago. But everything was about to change with the godfather of the department store who pushed the concept of shopping into new places. Now, the department store itself, the idea of a gigantic store that sold multiple items in different areas of the shop. We, America, did not invent this uh, in we London. We didn't? And it wasn't New York City? <laughs> well, no. I mean, Paris is a Le Bon Marche. Um, Le Bon Marche. Le yeah. Bon Marche. And Bainbridges and London both innovated this idea long before it came over to America, long before it stumbled into the hands of one Alexander Turney Stewart. He was born in Ireland. Curiously, he he stayed there while his mother moved to New York. And then when he was a teenager, he moved over here. When his Irish grandfather died, he actually received a large inheritance between $5,000 and $6,000. And the funds were... Which is a lot of money. A lot of money, which these funds were then annually granted to him. So he was Granddaded to him. Granddaded to him by his grandmother, um, who happened to be named Martha Stewart. Oh, I didn't see <laughs> given, that, that was coming. Given the retail tint of the show, I thought I should mention that. So with this money that he got, he opened his very first dry goods store. Dry goods meaning just cloths, textiles, things deriving from textiles. He opened it at 283 Broadway. Which is about where? Just north of City Hall. It's between Chambers and Reed Street okay. on Broadway. In his first advertisement, he declared that he sold things like, quote, linens, lawns, and diaper. Diaper being a cloth, a certain kind of cloth. Right. He immediately distinguished himself by having a curious way of doing business. He would haul boxes of 
fabrics and textiles out onto the sidewalk and allowed people to play around with his stock here. So you were touching the merchandise. Yes, which is unusual. You weren't really accustomed to that. And that bustle and chaos actually was a fine advertisement for the shop itself. Some of the more elegant ladies of town would order merchandise from him and then would sit out in the carriages and a selection of handsome store clerks would come out to deliver the delicate fabrics to the women as they were waiting in the carriages. Wow, 150 years later, um, <laughs> restaurants would be doing the same thing in the Midwest, but on roller skates. But this was only for like, you know, the, the higher class ladies got this special kind of service. He advertised regular and uniform pricing because he realized that a lot of women, uh, more demure women, weren't going to go into a shop and, and haggle a price, which was something that was very common that you did. Well, he became so successful that in 1846, across the street, he opened a gigantic store, which was referred to as the Marble Palace. It's America's first major department store. It was a four-story Italian Renaissance building, which is a style that is very popular in these sorts of stores. It was so big that by design, it was divided into departments. So that's why we call it the first department store. I should add that just down the street during this time, another young upstart named Tiffany and Company, two blocks away, would also open its doors. So this was becoming an early shopping district right here. And forgive me for asking you to repeat yourself, but what era are we talking about? What years? This opened in 1846. So So people are already moving uptown. And they're also acquiring great wealth at this period because of all the factors that we've talked about in prior shows. So New York is being filled with wealthy people who need wealthy items in which to shop. And of course, Stewart provided them and became himself one of New York's most wealthiest men. It just seems kind of inconvenient that they'd have to hop in their carriage and come all the way down to Chamber Street to to buy their dry goods. Well, at that time, areas more north were mostly residential. Other retailers did have that in mind when they soon built new shops up a little further north on Broadway, which I would say was the very first proto-ladies mile with such retailers as Lord & Taylor, who opened on Broadway and Grand in 1861. Arnold Constable and Company, who opened at Canal Street and Broadway. All of these buildings are still there, believe it or not, because they built these, as we, as we will probably use the phrase many times, commercial palaces. They're very lavish buildings. And it's amazing to think that these buildings in Soho, where they were located, are still there, still looking beautiful, and still selling clothing, many of them. Yeah, so that's the, yeah, that is the incredible thing, is here between, I would say, Broadway, between Canal and Houston, all of these buildings would have gigantic store windows. So it was also the birth of, of New York's window shopping era. And you can imagine at night, this is also meeting the the beginnings of gaslight. So with all these brand new large windows with beautiful gaslighting, it created a wonderful street scene here. And of right. course, and something you- I never thought about before was that a those windows were so expensive to make. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. But they were they were changing the the storefronts to allow those windows to actually be two floors. Oh, so the, right. Mm-hmm. So they were doubling the size of the ground floor in order to create this vast interior space and those windows that went along with them were just gigantic. So up to like 1860, most of this is below Houston, which I find very intriguing. Some some places, some little renegades are crossing the border here, but it would take Stuart to make the final jump here that would, of course, change everything and would become the start of Ladies Mile. For November 10th, 1862, A.T. Stewart moved from the Marble Palace to an even grander department store, what the locals called the New Store, and later would call the Iron Palace. This would be a Broadway between 9th and 10th Streets. It's curious because our last episode on the Astor Place riots... It's just around the corner. <laughs> was, it's one block. It's literally, it's, it's right next door to this. But we're talking 1862... 13 years later, so this is transforming this neighborhood and erasing that past. So all of a sudden, you have one of the biggest buildings in New York City, the Iron Palace here, with white cast iron and a beautiful interior rotunda. I mean, imagine, it's almost almost has like a modern mall-like feel, you know, Mm -hmm. when you go into a mall and there's like fountains and there's mezzanines, which is kind of unheard of for buildings of the time. Almost feels like a public space. So there were 
2,000 employees at wow. this building, which were required to run Stewart's at full efficiency. The first floor selling silks, linens, and there was even a remnants counter if you couldn't afford the real stuff. This was a true department store. If, if they were flirting with the concept before, here it would have almost 30 separate departments. And then, of course, on the thirty. Fourth- 30 separate departments, which seems extraordinary by this time because we were we were talking such small stores just 40 years before. The entire fourth floor was devoted to seamstresses and tailors. Wow. So, so you would buy your fabric. You would be fitted on the fourth floor. They would they would construct it right there. Probably not while you waited. Not while you waited, but it was much more convenient than it used to be. And this massive store took up the entire block there uh, between 9th and 10th on Broadway? Yeah, the entire... It was a six-story building, I forgot to add. I mean, it was just so powerful. And it wasn't cast iron, which would, of course, be incredibly influential to to these, to to all these, these to other, stores. other stores. And so this is just a block south of Grace Church. Right. Which, of course, you know, they must have loved that. That didn't cause little controversy. But in a sense, this is where Ladies Mile begins. Because as it turns out, as with his other store, he didn't go north enough. Like, he set a new boundary for, for, for stores, and then everyone leapfrogged over him. For as conditions in real estate changed and the proximity to transportation and to these fashionable parks and fashionable areas of town, the remainder of New York's thriving retail headed further up Broadway, up to 14th Street, and then, of course, even higher to the area that we're about to talk about, this area between Union Square and Madison Square. Tell me again the date that he opened his 9th Street store. The 9th Street store was opened in 1862. 1862. So as people were already moving up further, obviously he was catering to them. 16 years later, an incredibly important thing would happen in 1878 with the opening of the 6th Avenue Elevated Railway. That, you know, we've talked about in our Elevated podcast, that not only made it easier for people to get around, it made it possible for people to move further and further uptown looking for cheaper places to build their own homes or buy an apartment or whatever. So it really moved the population up. They could now work downtown and they could shop further downtown. And in specific, uh, in the context of this of this episode, it made it easier for people to move around w- while carrying things. Oh, that's which, a very good point. <laughs> you yeah. know, because usually you could walk, but you couldn't if, you know, if you were just a couple young ladies who wanted to go shopping, you probably couldn't carry a bunch of bags up more than just a couple blocks in your fancy frocks here. But here you could jump on the 6th Avenue. It could take you right to your doorstep. And the 6th Avenue Elevated had stops on 14th Street, on 18th Street, and on 23rd Street. Which is really interesting because really important stores would develop around those major stops. There was also the development of cast iron technology, which was not new. It had been used for thousands of years, but it was really refined and developed in the 1850s. Think how much cheaper it was than this marble facade yeah. that A.T. Stewart was using. Now, of course, they would clad these buildings in marble, you know, to give that that the facade, gra- the grandeur, you know, to to lure people to these exquisite stores. And you could also make larger buildings. Right. You could now use cast iron not just for these intricate, beautiful facades, but you could use them for the structural beams and for the columns inside. So you could build very safe and also very open spaces mm-hmm. that were not possible before and brought in light and also just gave a more dramatic modern feel exactly so we have the development of these new buildings we have new transportation options opening we have standardized pricing which you mentioned Mm -hmm. we also have other technological advances like electricity arriving on the scene other advances like the escalator and the elevator to make larger buildings possible And just a new mass of humanity walking up and down these giant avenues made the situation safer for women to go out on their own and do the shopping that before had been kind of closed. I mean, like you said, they didn't want to haggle over prices. That was kind of a man's job. Mm -hmm. Now they could go out because so many other people were on the streets. It was safer and it was easier. Throughout the 1860s and 70s and 80s, so many of these cast iron beauties would pop up along 6th Avenue that it developed the nickname Fashion Row. In fact, this area of 6th Avenue and then turning east on 23rd Street. Which sounds like a more appropriate name than Ladies Mile. Actually, right. But I mean, it is a row. It's not a mile. (laughs) 
it's a very and it's fashionable, if not always selling fashion. It's interesting that each of these streets had its own flavor. What do you mean by that? Well, Sixth Avenue developed these really large department stores that we're going to talk about here from 14th to 23rd Street. And because there was this ease of public transportation, many of them catered to a more middle class crowd. This was also a period of great influx of immigration, too, and changes in sort of the household. So you had people arriving in the city, taking transportation to get to these department stores and inside actually learning about new technologies that they could buy and take back to their apartment dwellings and and that would help them in the household chores. For shorthand, I guess, those who went on 6th Avenue may not have had servants or not as many servants, but other streets were different. Right. Well, 5th Avenue, so just over one block, didn't really have the same kinds of stores. There were some stores, but there were more, remember, opulent residences had developed along 5th Avenue. And were still there. Many were still there. Many of them were being replaced by something else, not, Greg... A department store, but rather office buildings. Okay. They were home to music publishers and to architects and to publishing firms. They weren't necessarily trying to attract people to commerce. But classy industry, though. Yes. Associated with this neighborhood. However, just one short half block away, because remember, Broadway hits Fifth Avenue there at Madison Square, was where their shopping was. So the more upscale stores could be found Along Broadway, fancier goods could be purchased. And this was called the carriage trade. Because these people, these clients, were arriving not by the 6th Avenue Elevated, but by their own private carriage. But what were these stores, and how can you walk along and visit them with us today? Well, we're going to take you on a walk when we come back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. 
Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, back to the show. So, Greg, do you have your walking shoes on? <laughs> All right. So, yeah, let me put on an imaginary scenario here. Okay. Um, let's say then since this is Ladies Mile, I will take on the guise of a lady here. Mm-hmm. So, I'm a lady um, with her best friend, and she's loaded. She's got a ton of money. Okay. And they got a new house, and they have a huge party. Oh, this sounds very gilded indeed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the year 1890, let's set okay. that, that for a year, because there's a few later places that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. later in the show. So 1890, 6th Avenue, 14th Street, we get out, my friend and I, tons of money. Tom, tell us where we're going to go. Can Give I a, be your tour guide? Please so be. So I'm, I'm meeting you downstairs on the elevator. Shopping consultant. Right. So the elevator is overhead. There's kind of a shadow down. We're standing at 14th Street. Let's go to the southeast corner, 14th and 6th. We're standing in front of R.H. Macy and Company. Now, Macy's opened its first shop in 1858 right here between 13th and 14th on 6th Avenue. A small shop. The family lived upstairs from it. And throughout the 1860s, it would expand to include many of the buildings around it. They would sort of annex the buildings to the north. And a lot of stores, by the way, I'll, I'll step out of character. A lot of the stores that you, you have a very low voice <laughs> for a lo- throwing a girly party. <laughs> so a lot of the stores that we'll be talking about are doing this precise thing. It starts off very small mm-hmm. and they end up expanding. And a lot of these end up expanding uh, an entire block. So Macy's is doing this right now. So back in character. So we're standing in front of Macy's. Right. And it doesn't look like the old shop that the family opened with the different annex shops because in 1880, so just two years after the Elevated opened in 78, Macy decided to renovate the entire thing because suddenly there were a lot more people, there was a lot more business, and there was some more competition. So he renovated with a new cast iron and glass facade with giant windows and windows along the 14th Street side too because he had expanded along 14th. They were notable because these windows were showcasing uh, merchandise in a way that they hadn't in other shops before. He also claimed to have the largest showroom in the city. Does that intrigue you, Mm. my guest? Should we go inside? Oh, that sounds great, but we already have a podcast on Macy's. I have an old podcast. so That's true. You can listen to a lot more about Macy's, including more information about the store. Today on that corner, you have the retailer urban outfitters but one of the buildings uh, that was part of the department store is still emblazoned with the macy's logo that you can still see from the street if you're hap- if you're walking this tour right now or looking at it on google maps or whatever you can locate the macy's logo on one of those buildings on 14th street Okay, so you're impatient. We're going to. Yes. I'm going to drag you up Sixth Avenue, and you know what? We're just going to jump a few blocks here because it's not very interesting along Fifth, Fifteenth, and Sixteenth, and even Seventeenth, most of Seventeenth Street. So get all the way up to Eighteenth and Sixth, where things start to heat up. Now, mm-hmm. looking at the west side of the street, that beautiful building uh, used to be the B Altman store. So now we might consider going into B Altman. Let's go in now. Now this was a store. <laughs> Oh, right, both of you, because there are two of you. Yeah, uh uh-huh. As if this isn't confusing (laughs) enough, you're with a friend who doesn't talk. Yeah, she doesn't talk through this, right. Okay, well, B. Altman started out on the Lower East Side, an old family store, largely owned by just one member of the clan, Mr. Benjamin. He moved the store up to 3rd Avenue and 10th Street in the 1860s, and then in 1877, they moved into this beautiful 6th Avenue location, a four-floor cast-iron neo-grecian beauty Mm. known as the palace of trade you know this building it's the beautiful gray facade has some blue awnings today it has the 
container store. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's right. Which is kind of we need to also have a little sad trombone. <laughs> I feel like. Well, we should say that. I mean, this is as of date of recording because some of these places might stay. Sure. And there's also an overriding reason why we're mentioning all of these brand names. It's an easy identifier. And because there's still stores that people go to, so we might snicker at the fact that this is now a container store downstairs. But you know, people know it because they've been in there and they've bought closet accessories. So well, here still I am, specialty merchandise. Right. Well, here I am in the, in 1890. I might walk in and get a container, a container oh. of some sort. Yeah. Yes, they probably have a container department. Yes. Meanwhile, upstairs, a couple of, um, floors on the third floor is uh, eBay's New York office, which I find really interesting to think that this online retailer would be um, housed in a former 19th century yeah. palace of trade. Well, if we just hop up another two blocks to West 20th Street, to the west side of the street, we're standing in front of Hugh O'Neill's. This is obvious. This is the building on the west side of the street because his name, Hugh O'Neill, <laughs> is still written on the building, emblazoned on the pediment atop the fifth floor. And this building has curious, bulbous, golden turrets at the top. It yes, domes. A, yeah. Domes on the 20th and 21st Street sides. Almost a Persian feel. It was designed by Mortimer Merritt in 1876 for Hugh O'Neill, who was born in Belfast, came to New York, opened up a store, moved it a couple times. He was known as the Fighting Irishman of Sixth Avenue, and he fought for a more middle-class clientele. He was on their side. Today, it's still there, luxury condos and a bank. The interesting thing to say about all of these buildings is because there is a 6th Avenue elevated train there, the second floors of all of these buildings are large showrooms. So from the train, as I'm pulling in, so I might have already seen the merchandise from Hugh O'Neill's and have wanted to go up here. Right, you could have you could have been browsing from your seat on the elevator. Mm-hmm. Done our shopping at Hugh O'Neill's. What's next? Well, if you come out of the doors of Hugh O'Neill and look across the street, you're looking at the Church of the Holy Communion. If you wanted to go into this <laughs> church that was designed by Richard Upjohn in 1846, you could. You could maybe repent for... <laughs> a various shopping crimes. Or for the party that will be. <laughs> in 1990, this building, of course, would be transformed into the legendary dance club, The Limelight. So we're continuing up 6th Avenue. We're passing beautiful Adams Dry Good, which is between 21st and 22nd on the west side of the street, because it isn't built yet. That would come (laughs) along in 1900. We get to the next building, Eric Brothers, which is at 699, which was a discount store that's on the west side of the street, the northwest corner of 22nd Street. That was a discount store in that Renaissance revival building with a cast iron facade. That's nice, but I don't do discounts, so take me to another store. Oh, today it has a Burlington Coat Factory. (laughs) Fine, we cross 23rd under the elevated stop, and we're now walking between 6th Avenue and 5th Avenue. We're walking east on 23rd Street. We're passing a couple shops, including Best & Company, on the north side of the street at number 53. I really want to take you into the Eden Musée. Oh, so that's not a shop. But rather an entertainment venue, a sort of freak show that was worthy of Barnum. And theaters and vaudeville houses would, of course, thread themselves around these department stores because, of course, a lot of people were going up there needed a break. And so they could sit and enjoy a show. And many of these places predated the shops Mm -hmm. as well. But if we just had a second to take a break and go inside, we could see wax figures of dead presidents. We could see midgets and fire eaters. A concert hall. We could see a robot named Ajib who played chess. A robot? A ro- well, there was a person inside. <laughs> a chamber of horrors. How much is the chamber of horrors? Well, the whole thing's 50 cents. That's kind of pricey for the day. All right, we'll keep going. But yes, on the south side of the street, I think you're going to love a trip inside Stern Brothers. Who are the Stern Brothers? Well, specifically Bernard, Isaac, and Lewis. They started the store in Buffalo in 1867 and then moved it down to New York the next year. They had several different locations before moving into this giant cast iron Beaux-Arts beauty, which took up much of the block, the giant white cast iron structure, which of course is today's Home Depot. You can still see if you 
you look above the door to the Home Depot, look for the SB insignia above the door. We took a for the Stern Brothers. Yeah, a photo of this yesterday. I'm sure you can put this mm-hmm. on the on the blog. Well, why don't we stop to rest our feet and get a drink? I believe one of New York's most famous hotels is right up here on the corner, the Fifth Avenue Hotel. That's right. The north side of the street facing Madison Square. Right at 5th Avenue and 23rd is the 5th Avenue Hotel, which was built in 1858. Very exclusive spot. It was an exclusive place to sleep, but also just to hang out in the lounge, to network with other people, maybe to do some insider trading deals. Yeah, and a lot of political machinations took place here in in the rooms here at the 5th Avenue Hotel. Unfortunately, it was ripped down in 1908, replaced by today's office building that has been housing the International Toy Center for about the past 90 years or so. And today, it's very well trafficked on its ground floor for Italy. So we could still pop in there and have a really great glass (laughs) of wine. Mm -hmm. Well, before we go down Broadway where I heard the stores are a little nicer, let me just peek my head down Fifth Avenue. What am I I seeing as I look down here? Because, by the way, this is 1890, so this is before the Flatiron Building is there, of course. Right. Instead, you would see a lot of opulent residences because this was a swanky stretch. You would also see these new these new office buildings catering to publishing firms and architects and others. And indeed, McKim, Mead, and White themselves mm-hmm. uh, were located in the Mohawk, which is still standing today at 165th. No, I've got things to buy. I've got some money burning my pocketbook. Um, and you need a new pocketbook. Yes. So where am I going for that? Well, so we're going to head down Broadway right there. And things start cooking around 20th Street. We're at the southwest corner. We arrive at Lord & Taylor, which you already discussed, was downtown. And here we are at its new building, moved into in 1870. This building is very notable from the exterior. The cast iron facade, white, over-the-top, ornate. And actually, the facade that you see on 20th Street continued along Broadway. Some of that has been taken down and replaced by another building, but it was it was all the same structure and all the same facade. I'm getting a feeling that these buildings are trying to become more ostentatious and grandiose in a way to just sort of like grab my retail dollar. Like I'm forced to walk into them and spend money. <laughs> well, especially if you would head outside and when we cross the street just south of that, we're in Arnold Constable's store. No, that was definitely the finer goods. That was definitely more of a upscale store, from if I recall. And it opened in 1868, a distinctly gothic look. They claimed to offer everything from, quote, cradle to grave. <laughs> Crib to coffin? <laughs> Crib to coffin. It was one of the first shops in the country to, to let its clients pay for things on credit. So if you and your girlfriend were kind of you know, you didn't happen to have enough cash on you right now, and you had a certain reputation to your name, family name, you could just pay for it on credit and pay twice a year. Every six months, you could just sort of settle your tab. So, so the beginnings of so many people's grief began in places <laughs> like this back in the day with the, with the like birth Arnold of Arnold Constable. Right. <laughs> the day is almost done. I've still got a tiny little bit more of shopping, a tiny bit of shopping to do. Where should I go? Well, as soon as you come out of Constable's looking across the street, on the east side of 19th, that beautiful old building was W&J Sloan. It's been there since 1882, and it was a really fancy upscale carpeting shop. Interestingly, both of these buildings, Constables and Sloan's, would be taken over in the 20th century by ABC Carpets. So, so it's a- still sell carpets. Right. So ABC Carpets is across the street in Constables store, and ABC Carpets and Home, that great shop, is in the Sloan building. So these buildings have seen fibers for decades. (laughs) And their customers have always walked all over them. (laughs) Finally, last stop, Greg, because we Mm -hmm. need some entertainment Mm -hmm. at this party that you're throwing. So let's just head in at the southwest corner of East 18th into Charles Ditson's red brick building, still there today, opened in 1883. Ditson sells sheet music, and we need some music for the piano that you play. Yes, for the piano that I just purchased from Steinway. Right, actually your silent friend plays the piano. Yes, uh-huh. Nobody has a selection like Ditson. Unfortunately, he'd leave the building in 1908 when Paragon Sports would move in and still occupy that building to this so day. Paragon Sports has been there since 1908? That's right. Selling the perfect running shoes ever since. 
And this ends our role play here at Ditson's slash Paragon. Obviously, I wanted to take you into the factory, Andy Warhol's factory across the street <laughs> with the Petco downstairs, but that's a different show. So that was sort of the scene in 1890. Which basically caps the heyday, right, of Ladies Mile? I, well, yeah, I would say that the 1890s is probably the tippy top, the golden age of Ladies Mile, especially with the introduction of two buildings that would come into the area during the 1890s and that would define Ladies Mile. Coincidentally, we have Chicago to thank mm. for both of these. Now... Remember back in our tour, B. Altman's for the yes. container store? Bed Bath & Beyond was a, today across the street. Between 18th and 19th on 6th. Bed Bath & Beyond occupies a building that was once the biggest department store in the world. Perhaps the most opulent shopping experience in New York City. For this was the Siegel Cooper store, which opened in 1896. The original store was in Chicago, opened by Henry Siegel and Frank Cooper. They opened in 1887, so they, it's, a, it's a big Chicago firm. They were decided to make a big, splashy debut in New York, so they hired the firm of Delimos and Cord to build New York's very first steel-framed super building. So up until this point, we had had cast iron. Right, so this isn't cast iron? This steel is a frame. steel frame, which allowed for even more space. It was fireproof. In fact, all of their ads touted this, that like, well, this is the most fireproof building in New York City. It was clad in such luxurious materials like terracotta, bronze, and marble. When it opened in September 12th, 1896, it was, quote, the largest and finest building ever erected in New York City and a city unto itself. I'd also read somewhere else it was the second most expensive building in New York City history. Wow. I'm not sure what the first one though was, though it might have been the Tweed Courthouse. Mm-hmm. So just put your mind around that. So the second most expensive that used its money wisely. Yes, yeah, 750,000 square feet. The press nicknamed it the Big Store. It had three entrances, one on 6th Avenue, which is where, you know, we still have one, one on 18th and 19th. Each of these had triple archways which met inside so if you had two other friends and they went into the other entrances you could all meet at the fountain a 70 foot marble basin where arose a bronze marble statue of the republic designed by daniel chester french of each of those corners were lustrous fountains lit with electric lights, quote, the hues of which will change every second with kaleidoscopic brilliancy and variety. There were 70 departments at Siegel Cooper's. And sorry for the obvious question, but when I think of like Bed Bath & Beyond in that structure uh-huh. today, that's really only on the first floor and the basement. You're talking about a store that occupies the entire building. The entire building, I would say Bed Bath & Beyond uses probably like 25% of the total space. Here's some of the departments. Pharmacy, you had a barbershop, a manicurist, savings bank, a dentist, a servant's employment agency. Up on the roof, you had a photography studio. There was also a greenery that sold plants that were cultivated on the rooftop. They made their own. Florist for freshly cut flowers. There was a nursery for your baby. If you wanted to just drop off the baby and do some shopping, because you know, that's a good idea. A free grammar school for you know children who are five or six. You could just leave them there, and they can learn their ABCs. Amongst the departments here, you could there was a place where you could buy live animals like dogs and birds. They had a canned goods department where they actually canned everything on the premises. They had a bicycle shop with its own inside bike track. Because this is 1890s, bikes were really big. 22 elevators, most of which for passengers. The second floor had a ladies' room equipped with, quote, divans, couches, tete-a-tetes, and luxury easy chairs. On the fourth floor were all the groceries and perishables. And, of course, they had a large cold storage unit, which was very innovative of the day. There was even at the very top of the building a tower that was very similar to what was happening over at Madison Square Garden, where they had tours that you could actually go to the top of the tower. So it was even on top of everything else, a tourist attraction. 
So we had just done this walk in 1890. This thing opened six years later. It sounds it's the grandest so of all of them. Yeah, bigger and more opulent than these other places that we just walked through. It's blowing them all out of the water. It's such a spectacle that when it opened on September 12th, 1896. Thousands of people crammed into the store, almost like a Black Friday-esque kind of mob. The police were called. There were so Luckily, many... they had their own police department. Yeah, and there were actually guards at the railroad stations to, to like hold back <laughs> mobs of people that were spilling out of the trains. Seal innovated a lot of things that we take for granted today, like free samples of food products that would be provided to people as they were walking around. I guess they'd need some nourishment. Sounds like they'd be in there for days. <laughs> Seriously, it was, it was referred to as the city unto itself. Now, I mentioned another gift from Chicago around this period of time. Now, skyscrapers, which had defined lower Manhattan, were beginning to make their way up to this area, of course, because there's so much going on at the corner of Broadway and 23rd Street uh, would be built, of course, the classic Flatiron Building, designed by the Chicago architect Daniel Burnham in this Italian Renaissance style. It's am- it's amazing how strangely in keeping a lot of the buildings of the Ladies Mile area, that there's a certain Beaux-Arts consistency to them. So this sounds so lavish, and it sounds so lovely, and it sounds so respectable. Mm-hmm. Part of this has to do with electricity, right. because these places could stay open later. By the 1880s and 1890s, they had proper electric streetlights, and the establishments could turn on the lights. And so the scene lasted well into the evening, and stores could operate later. This also kind of opened up another element of Ladies Mile, which was sort of after dark. It would take on another meaning, Ladies Mile, for it would be a place for prostitution on the side streets. Um, uh-huh, so ladies were still walking the streets. So, yes, they were walking the streets, a different kind of lady at this time. And so those went hand in hand. Keep in mind, this is also an area that's somewhat close to the Tenderloin District, mm-hmm. where prostitution was quite rampant. Now, in 1904 was the construction of the New York subway system and allowed for several stops that were around this area. Which is the same time that Flatiron Building was being occupied. So this sounds like this would be the heyday. I know you said that about 10 years earlier was the heyday. Well, that subway right. that, I, that, that just got built here, it brought people to the neighborhood, right. but more likely... It took uh, them away. It took them away. Because, of course, this ever-moving migration north is still happening. It just stopped here for a few decades. But now it's moving on from the Union Square, Madison Square area up to the Herald Square and Times Square area. Macy's made the jump to Herald Square in 1902. So right before World War One, so almost 100 years ago today, retailers began really fleeing the Ladies Mile District. It was no longer fashionable. Lord and Taylor's literally 100 years ago moved to there, the place where they're still at today on Fifth Avenue and 38th Street. Some of the department stores that were still there were trying to make it any way they could through mergers. Then you had Siegel Cooper moving into abandoned property. So they actually moved into the B. Altman's across the street and tried to make a go of it there. It didn't really work. By the end of World War I, there were no department stores in Ladies Mile. All these spaces are now taking on unusual new tasks. Post-commercial uses. Several of them were were given over to the U.S. military. Adams Dry Good, for at least five years, was actually a Hershey's chocolate plant. Um, Oh, that sounds promising. But unfortunately, it was specifically for a new Hershey's product, Hershey's Chewing Gum. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) How did that work out for them? Well, it was kind of a flop. Their bubble burst? (laughs) Unfortunately, the bubble burst on the Hershey chewing gum. So, but a lot of these buildings were either abandoned or used for like, one of them became a car showroom. All of the, the grand and mighty department stores had uh, were now inelegantly basically turned into storage spaces. But then something very, very odd happened. A collection of factors renewed the neighborhood in the late 1980s and uh, the 1990s. These loft places be transformed into loft apartments and then later condos. I found a funny quote from the New York Times in 1987, you know, with their usual 
like we've just discovered this charm. Mm-hmm. Um, quote, Chelsea has perfected one of the great tricks of cultural geography, how to hide a 75 square block neighborhood on the edge of Midtown Manhattan and Greenwich Village. For years, the area has been touted as up and coming, yet to the relief of many longtime residents, it has remained in the shadow of its more glittery neighbors. So the fact that the neighborhood had gone to this like, oh, we've just discovered it. Like it went from department store era to being an underappreciated, almost a forgotten neighborhood. Well, with the city is improving fortunes, believe it or not, retail very slowly came back to these very same buildings. Many of the franchises would move into these places. So for instance, Old Adams Dry Goods, Barnes & Noble moved in there. You mentioned Burlington Coat Factory moving into the Ehrlich's Brothers. Bed Bath & Beyond, the container store, as we mentioned, and up and down the street. Soon a lot of these places were occupied by national chains, but they were essentially selling the same types of things that they were selling 100 years before. Now, there's certainly something to be said about these old stores and the grandeur of them that is a loss when you have a street of continual brand names. And so that's a little disappointing. And, you know, that there's a bigger conversation to be had here about the individuality of retail establishments. We're losing that in place of uh, stores that you can go to in any part of the United States or around the world. But the, the thing to remember here is that these glorious commercial palaces, some of the most beautiful buildings that New York has ever seen, most of them did survive the bad periods of New York City history and are now being used for the purposes in which they were actually intended. The fact that many of these are still able to be visited today is not just because the buildings themselves were well-constructed, as they were, but because of the efforts of preservationists, like the Landmark Preservation Commission, which was successful in classifying this the Ladies Mile Historic District in 1989, and so many other preservationists who have worked so hard and tirelessly in other neighborhoods around town and on individual buildings. So we owe a huge amount of gratitude. On our blog, Barry Wars Podcast, I'll have some of these buildings, photos of these buildings in their heyday. Some of the shoppers that uh, would have visited them, and of course, some glorious images of that elevated train that streaked through 6th Avenue. And I encourage you, next time you walk this stretch of 6th, 5th, or Broadway, to look up at the structures and appreciate what's upstairs rather than at street level. The best way to see these buildings is not up close, but to actually cross the street and sort of take in, soak in the whole view here of these glorious five to six story palaces of Sixth Avenue. Well, it sounds like we're at the end of our shopping spree here, Greg. I think that you did mention at the beginning that there were a few announcements. Well, yes. So, We usually, every summer in the past, we've had summer mini-series where we've had like three or four shows that were of similar topics. Well, we're not going to do that this year. We have a few other things cooking up, however. We're going to have a greater quantity of shows. So for the next two months, there is going to be a new Bowery Boys release every two weeks. So for the months of June and July. Usually people slow down for the summer, but not us. And the next show in two weeks is going to be a very special event. Um, which I'll have more information on the blog a little bit later. You have to tune in to find out what mysteries that we have cooked up for this summer. So much excitement's happening. You're going to think of us in a completely different way by the end of the summer, and hopefully that's a good thing. Well, thank you for checking out our Ladies Mile podcast. We hope something registered. <laughs> yeah, we've been devoid of puns, so get them out. Yeah, we were just so excited about all of these different structures. Follow Greg on Twitter at Bowery Boys. The new Instagram account is also Bowery Boys. Oh, and I forgot to mention, we're now selling t-shirts. So please go to the blog and and show your pride of the Bowery Boys and wear it on your chest. Unfortunately, you can't buy it at a ladies' mail store right now. It's only online. We'll have um, to talk to B. Altman about that. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.